everybody welcome back this is emily and this is jennifer and this is another episode of beauty and the screams (laughs) (laughs) that was um i love it you gotta leave it like that too because you were like and the screams (laughs) like you were annoyed with me why do I never think of things to say ahead of time? I don't know. We we always do this. Like, almost always. Like, every once in a while, one of us will think about it ahead of time. Happy Thanksgiving, I guess, even though Thanksgiving was last week. But oh, yeah, Turkey Day. Well, technically, it's only... A few days after. Three days later. Yeah, so happy three-day belated Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you guys were safe and... But still were able to be with some of the people in your life, so you're not hanging out all alone. Yes, I put together Turkey Jeopardy to play with my family, and I thought that was fun. Even though we were a small group, it was a good time. It was fun. Yeah, no, I think it's because, like, we spent, like, Thanksgivings like this together in California. Like, it was you, me, Sarah, Melissa, Mom, whatever. Like, yes, like... David and Jonathan are there now, but they're, like, just extensions of our original family. Yeah. It was nice because, I mean, not that I don't love everyone else because I definitely do. Like, that's just how it was for us because we weren't around everybody else. Yeah. It's true. It's true. The only thing I hate about family time and stuff like that or big things like that is cleaning up. Because I always end up being the one that sucks washing all the dishes. Well, I would have helped if I had known you guys were doing it. You guys hadn't even started yet when um, David's mom got to the house. And then I come inside and you guys are basically done. <laughs> yeah, girl. Because when you're about to clean a kitchen, you just bust it out. I washed. Mom and Sarah rinsed and dried and put stuff away. Of course she just busted out. I did, like... Probably seven sink bowls of dishes, if not more than that, in the last two days. That ain't my fault. No, that's my fault. Well, actually, no. It is, but it's not. Because I wasn't doing dishes, because I couldn't stand at the sink to do dishes. And the only reason it took me two days to wash them all is because my back started to hurt when I was washing them yesterday. But yes, I hope everybody had a very happy Thanksgiving. I thought about it way later, that I should have watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade with my clients, but I didn't think about it because I was busy, you know, like putting up Christmas trees and getting ready for Christmas on Thanksgiving. Yeah. We put up the Christmas tree and, uh, put out some decorations and I got everything ready for them to be able to cook dinner and tried to make it as easy as possible on everybody else. Yeah. So I know that our last episode, I talked about Tinder. (laughs) So, shout out to anybody who's actually listened, who's talked to me on Tinder, because I've told maybe three people about us, but let me just say, I have seen some things that my eyes cannot unsee, (laughs) and I have gotten messages, the most bizarre messages, I get a message from this guy that's literally opening line. They say beauty is on the inside, but I've never been inside you, so how could I know? Fucking weirdo. And my response was, I don't even know how to respond to that. And he said, you don't have to. Just say when. I'm ready when you are. The fuck? You've never talked to someone before and you immediately tell them, like, (laughs) let's go have sex. Like, that's like your big, like, opener? Yeah. Fucking weirdo. Yeah, um... I received a penis picture. (laughs) Okay, so anybody that, like, knows me or has, like, followed my life at any point, it has been a long time. Like, I feel like, what is her name? The Helen Keller in the the dating world. Like, I can't see... When's the last time you got a dick pic? A dick pic... Oh my god, it's been a long time. Long time. 
long time. Like, I only think one other guy had ever sent me an actual dick pic before, and I did sleep with that guy. I but. don't think I've ever gotten a dick pic. Well, I only had one one time, and it was when I was barking up the tree of this guy that was, like, a notoriously known man whore, but I thought he was sexy because he reminded me of Zach Beggins. So, like, obviously, I see him across the party, and I'm like, is that you, Zach Beggins? Whisk me off into the sunset. And I just got a little stardazed, and stuff happened. I did get a penis picture from him, but that was on Snapchat, and I couldn't save it. So, it's his word against mine. And you can set your snaps not to end till like, the person clicks on it. Like, it'll just stay up. Well, I know. That's what I do usually, but, like... You can also set it to only be on there for, like, a second. I don't know. I don't remember how it all went down. All I know is I got a dick pic from him. And then he asked for a picture of my boobs in reciprocation. So I went on Google. (laughs) And I looked up different boobs and found ones that I thought looked the most like mine. That's funny. Because I'm just not that kind of girl. Like, I don't... I. I don't know. I just guys go online and they Google dick pics and send girls pictures of other people's dicks because they're uncomfortable with the size of their dick. Maybe. Or they're like, I don't know. I feel like the way the lighting is hitting my... Like, oh, I feel demasculated by my tiny penis. I'm going to send a picture of someone else's and hope that when you see my baby, you're not surprised. Or what if their penis just is like a weird color? Or like they're just... There's some... Like maybe there's not even like... Maybe it's a good dick. Like maybe they feel like it curves a little bit too much to the but, left. No, but what if to them they like see these other penises and they're like, oh my god, my penis is this weird color. Like it's not weird, like it doesn't look like it's rotting and going to fall off. But maybe your penis may look a little jaundice, or maybe your penis is just a little bit more purple than somebody else's. Maybe they're just conscious about it and they're like, oh my god, if I send her a picture of that, like... She's never going to talk to me again. And then it just so happens, I don't even really look at them. I actually try very hard not to make eye contact. Penises are just weird. Right. Like, I don't want to look it in the eye. I never want to look it in the eye. Like, I'm imagining my hand is just a penis. And the thought of anything <laughs> happening with something, like, like... Anything going inside of me. I'm imagining me. your hand is a penis too. And I was just sitting there looking at it and my brain was formulating like the penis and then like the head curving around yeah. the you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> and I guess maybe I need to know from female listeners, does that work for girls? Like, are you like, yes, he sent me a picture of his wiener and I was at work sitting on the couch but you do know that there's probably there are probably girls out there that like go on there and immediately are like sending boob pics and shit because they want to go do it. Like, I mean that's true. Like the girl to me that's a sign from a from a girl side. If I were to be doing that, that's a sign of like low self esteem because that's not what I want someone to be attracted to me for or want to talk to me for. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of why... It's like they think that that's the one... Well, and maybe they just want to hook up. Like, maybe it has nothing to do with... Right. Oh, my God. All the bizarre things I found in the world of Tinder. Because there's people that will probably get on Tinder just because they want to hook up. And then there's probably people that get on Tinder because they're looking for someone to, like, be in a relationship with. Like... So, to be completely honest, I set my Tinder to also show me females, mostly because... I mean, there's that little bit of curiosity side of me, but then there's also that other curiosity side of me that's like, what are these bitches on Tinder doing? Like, because am I the only one, like, on there, like, cat mom, Harry Potter nerd, don't make it weird, I don't want to talk about your dick, I don't want to see it. Did you put that on there? Um. Because you should have. It does say, I don't care about your dick, don't make things weird. Oh, so then you still got one anyway. Well, but see, it's frustrating because it was like eased on. Like it wasn't like instant, like bam, there's the dick. Yeah, no, it was a very weird, awkward conversation leading to the dick. Yep. Yep. He's just like, 
since you said my dick will suffice, ba bam, and then I was left concerned. I would be concerned too, yo. I don't know, like to me, the equivalency would be me taking a picture of my fucking vagina. And sending it to somebody, and I don't even want to see that. Why would someone else want to see that? Like, do guys really, like, sit there and just, like, marvel at their dicks? Like, this is the most amazingly beautiful sculpted penis, and I want everyone to see. I am going to send it to every single contact in my cell phone. <laughs> Bro, look at this immaculate penis. Oh, man. Oh, I don't know. Like, I don't get it. So I have also come across one of my really good friends has an older sister and her older sister popped up for me and her older sister is married with a kid. So like, and I know she's married happily. I'm, I get that picture. So I'm like, what are they trying to get up into on here? And then, so I have to tell you this. I know you know who I'm talking about, but we obviously can't use names. But this girl and her now fiancé have tried on multiple different occasions to get me to come hang out with them. And I'd heard through the grapevine that, like, she's a freak, whatever. But I'm like, I literally am, like, puppies and rainbows. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm ever, like, viewed in that way. So I'm like, no, it's just completely, like, completely innocent. Like, they just want to hang out with just me, <laughs> this couple. I mean, I would try to convince myself that, too. So. Well, I had been told that they try to find a third all the time. And at that point, I was like, okay, no, this isn't happening. So then I stopped, like, communicating so much because that makes me uncomfortable. And then recently they tried again around Halloween. They were going to, anyway, they were trying to get me to come over. Didn't happen, obviously. I was on Tinder and she fucking popped up. And it's like, it says like, looking for our unicorn. Da, 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 da. We don't um, play separate. We all play together. Like all this other stuff. And I was like. Nope. <laughs> My mind just went. Whew. Yeah. I was like, no, the whole time. <laughs> oh, no. They were trying to get up in this little girl's lair. I would never be able to look at you the same. Like, <laughs> listen, so I thought I was just going to go hang out and watch a scary movie. But meanwhile, it was a scary movie. Yeah. It was a fucking thriller. That wouldn't be a thriller, girl. That would be, like, a drama. <laughs> Could you imagine me getting myself into a situation like that, not realizing that's a situation I'm going into? So that I'm in that situation, that would be such a drama. Like, I would be like... Well, yeah, because you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. You'd just be like, you'd be sitting there, like... Supposed to I'd be like, out. oh... Like, I can just, like, hear your thoughts, like, in my head right now. Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Like... And then just, like... How well, do I get out of here? And then you'd be just, like, call me, like, I have to go to the bathroom and, like, pick up all your shit and leave. <laughs> <laughs> my ass gets stuck trying to climb through the bathroom door, and I'm like, Winnie the fucking poo, like, hanging out, like, no! Save me. <laughs> no, I mean, just no judgment, whatever. But it's just not for me. No. I will never, ever be the second fiddle to anybody. Ever. Yeah, no, definitely not. I am a one-woman fiddler. <laughs> a one-woman fiddler? Yeah, this girl can play her own fiddle. What else has happened? I had a guy message me. His opening question was, if you were stranded on an island, what three things would you have taken with you? Maybe he just wants to see like if your answers are deep or not. I said, I really have to think about this. Then I said, the only one thing I can say, I would definitely bring my box set of Harry Potter books because endless entertainment. <laughs> but then I'm like, okay, should I say I want to get one of those? Because you know those huge like joke lighters they have those huge ones mm -hmm. take one of those because i don't know how to make fire without 
a lighter. Yeah, and you I don't do want to take matches. Did you realize that those big joke lighters like only have a little bit of fluid in them? Oh. So it's like a little bitty lighter inside of a big lighter. That's stupid. Yeah. I mean, Sasha's is still working that she got when she was like 20. Really? Yeah, I use it when I dabble in the dark arts over there. Huh. So, but yeah, it's been an interesting experience. I actually did swipe right on one girl and I matched with her, but that was only because she seemed really, really nice and she had like, her whole thing was about how she liked horror movies and I was like, I would be friends with this girl. So like, I mean, that's true though. Like people could be on Tinder to make friends. Never thought about that. Yeah. I don't believe it for a second though. I mean, I don't have it on my phone because of the fact that I don't think that it's for friends, but. Right. Plus you don't want friends. Who needs friends when I have the best sister in the world? Who needs friends? I am actually perfectly content with myself, honestly. And I didn't used to be that way, but I am like. I love spending time with Jennifer. She's pretty great. Dude, I don't mind if I brag. I love Emily time. And Emily just ordered herself a 40-inch flat-screen TV for her room. So Emily's going to be getting a lot of Emily time. It'll be fun, dude. Like, especially once you get an Xbox. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Make sure you get one with a disc drive so we can watch Harry Potter movies. I ain't stupid like you guys. (laughs) Yeah, they bought not one... But two Xbox Ones. They have one in their bedroom and one in the living room. And they both are discless. They have no DVD player. The only option to watch a DVD in this house is on the computer in the basement. And I can't even get the thing to freaking register my movie when I put it in anyway. That's upsetting because I even put like upgraded the video card in there. Mm-hmm. We could try it again. But I'm just saying... I need to just, when I get like taxes or whatever, and I feel like splurging a little bit, just buy the digital copies of all the Harry Potter movies. I don't know where I was going with that thought. I don't know. I think I was either. Actually, I do know where I was going with it because I just had like an entire conversation with myself in that time about think like offering you my movies and then realizing that I didn't really want to do that. I have most of them. I'm missing like two or three and I don't know why. I know Goblet of Fire is my fault because I'd had it in my work computer and when I went to take my work computer back, it was still in the computer so I freaked out like and I'm thankful I remembered it but then I like threw it in my car (laughs) and then I was really good about like keeping it in a thing, and I don't know what ended up happening, but it got real scratched, and that was my bad. Poor Goblet of Fire. I know, and that's like the third copy of Goblet of Fire that I've purchased. Because the first one, I just watched it too much, that it kind of wore out. Yeah. I uh, stockpiled and grew my collection of Harry Potter while I was working at Kmart. You're a wizard, Harry. I spent a lot of money when I was working at Kmart on DVDs and CDs and... DVDs, CDs. Because, like, I'd be the person or one of the people that would go back and, like, unbox the shit on Friday morning when stuff would be released. And I'm like, oh, one of these is going home with me. Yes, she did. (laughs) But anyway, check out the PFPN. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. week on beauty and the screams we tackle one of the funnest most interesting topics we have ever done forensic science Woo-hoo. yeah so i figured since we're always talking about 
like murderers and serial killers that it would probably be good to shed some light on how a lot of them were caught in the first place. Yes. <clears throat> so, forensic science, also known as criminalistics, is the application of science to criminal and civil laws during criminal investigation. Really? Yes. Okay, Mrs. Potts. Not quite sure where that came from, but that's okay. Um, so, forensic scientists collect, preserve, and analyze scientific evidence. Evidence. <laughs> yeah, evidence. Evidence. I don't know what that was. <laughs> so. <laughs> I was going to say scientific evidence, but what came out? <laughs> Scientific evidence during the course of an investigation. While these scientists travel to the scene of the crime to collect evidence themselves, others occupy a laboratory role performing analysis on objects brought to them by other individuals. The true, true heroes. Yes. So, forensic scientists... Oh my god. Forensic scientists... (laughs) Forensic scientists also testify as expert witnesses in both criminal and civil cases and can also work for the prosecution as well as the defense to either help prove someone's innocence or guilt. Hmm. All right, so you ready to get back to the basics? Always. Because I'm going to be talking to all y'all about the history of forensic science. Another history lesson with Jennifer. Yes. I love history for some reason. I didn't used to. It's a new love. So, um, the ancient world lacked standardized forensic practices which enabled criminals to escape punishment and to get away with their crimes. Then, criminal investigations and trials relied heavily on forced confessions and witness testimony. At that point, even an innocent person could be forced with threats to take the blame for a crime that had been committed by someone else entirely. Mm Mm-hmm. Peer pressure. Yeah. However, ancient sources do contain some accounts of techniques that were a way of foreshadowing concepts of forensic science that were developed hundreds of years later. Many eons ago. It wasn't until 1,248, whatever year that was, a long ass time ago, like almost a thousand years ago, (laughs) Um, it wasn't until then that the first account of using medicine and etymology to solve criminal cases was documented. A Chinese man named Song Song Si, who was the director of justice, jail, and supervision, introduced regulations concerning autopsy reports used in court. Um, They explained how to protect evidence um, during the examination process. Mm -hmm. It explained why forensic workers must demonstrate like impartiality in public. Like they're not allowed to say like one way or the other, like which way they're this way and he was able to get all this together and he wrote a book called Z Yang Lu which translates to English um, as washing away of wrongs oh I like that very poetic I thought you'd like that too he's a poet and he probably knew it yep so in this book he devised methods for making antiseptics for promoting the reappearance of hidden injuries and dead bodies. So, like, he would take, he would use sunlight and put, like, vinegar and stuff over the body and, like, look at it through a red umbrella to be able to see, like, ligature marks and stuff. Like, oh, that's cool. Strangled and killed. And he also developed the method to calculate the time of death by looking at what the weather was like in the area and, like, insect activity in the bodies so he figured out like how to tell like how long people had been dead he also described how how to wash and examine the dead body to discover the reason for death oh and then also when he wrote the book it the 
he was able to describe in there how you could tell the difference between a suicide and a faked suicide. Oh, so like somebody killing them and then like trying to trying make to it look like they did it like themselves. A... Yeah. Yeah. So in, in washing away of wrongs, song wrote of a case where a person was murdered with a sickle. The investigator was able to determine uh, that the murder weapon was a sickle by testing various blades on crim- on criminal <laughs> by t- <laughs> by testing various blades on animal carcasses and comparing the wounds um, that each blade made. So then he was like, "Yep, it was a sickle." So the criminal investigator then was able to solve the case by instructing each of his suspects to bring his sickle to one location. Flies um, are actually attracted to the smell of blood. And eventually the flies gathered on a single sickle. In the light of this, the owner of that sickle confessed to the murder. Oh, shit. Yeah. Another, Forensics, baby. I know. Um, another example in the book distinguishes between a drowning, which has water in the lungs, and strangulations uh, based on like broken cartilage in your neck and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as to determine whether a death was caused by murder, suicide, or an accident. Murder. Murder. Mm-hmm. You're going to like this one. So, before the polygraph test, methods used around the world involved saliva and examination of the mouth and tongue to desert, to determine if a person um, was innocent or guilty. Because, <laughs> hold on. In ancient India... Some suspects were made to fill their mouths with dried rice and spit it back out. And in China, those who were accused of a crime would have rice powder placed in their mouths. In the in ancient Middle East, those accused of a crime were made to lick a hot metal rod briefly, as it was thought that these tests would um, have some validity since a guilty person would produce less saliva. And thus have a drier mouth. What? I feel like I would be so nervous. I'd be sitting there like, come on, saliva. Maybe that's why their mouths are drier. Because they're thinking about it too much. Maybe. They're like, I got this. I got enough saliva in this mouth. So. (laughs) The accused from these cases would be considered guilty if... The rice was sticking to their mouths in abundance, or if their tongues were severely burned due to the lack of shielding from the saliva. So what about, because it's a common diagnosis now, that people get chronic dry mouth. Like what if somebody had chronic dry mouth and was made to be guilty for a crime they didn't commit? Right. Yeah. Fuck their science. (laughs) Alright, so... In the 16th century in Europe, medical practitioners in army and university settings began to gather information on the cause and manner of death. It was, an, it was a French army surgeon who systematically studied the effects of violent death on a person's internal organs um, that is now put in, like, in practice in modern use. So like you know, they're able to look and see like based on what happens with their organs if they died um, of like natural causes or if like something that like foul play was involved. Like poison? Yeah. Um, there were two Italian surgeons that then laid the foundation for modern pathology by studying changes that occurred in structures of the body as a result to different diseases. Oh. So, (laughs) as the values from the 16th century enlightenment period began to turn Criminal investigations into the 18th century, uh, more of their cases became um, evidence-based versus those random, like, put rice in your mouth. Like, right. <laughs> so they were doing things based on evidence, not so much accusation. Because they had been doing a lot of stuff like using torture and stuff to force confessions. And that slowed down a lot with this. And also the belief of witchcraft... And other external powers having influence over, over people like in the court, 
uh, those decisions were mostly stopped. Like, except for, like, in cases where they're like, this person's a witch. This burn the witch! But, like, they wouldn't say, like, this person died because of witchcraft. Like, unless, yeah, it's complicated. Because it's still not quite past all the witch stuff yet. So, in 1784, John Toms was tried and convicted for murdering Edward Coleshaw with a pistol. When the body of Coleshaw was examined, a pistol wad, which was the, like, crushed paper that they would use to put the um, powder and balls together and put it in the muzzle, Mm -hmm. the ball of paper was found in um, the head wound that matched perfectly with a little torn piece of newspaper from the torn newspaper that they found in Tom's pocket, which ultimately led to his conviction. So, yeah. Damn. This is like early times of forensic science. And people wouldn't even be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And then in 1816, a farm laborer was tried and convicted of the murder of a young maidservant. She had been drowned in a shallow pool and bore marks of violent assault. The police found footprints and an impression from corduroy cloth with a sewn patch in the damp earth near the pool where the where she'd been drowned. There were also scattered grains of wheat laying everywhere. Wheat then, rain? yeah, and then the pants of a farm laborer who had been. Um, threshing wheat nearby were examined and corresponded exactly to the impression in the in the earth near the pool. So that's like the first time they used like impressions to solve a murder. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The whole like tire thing, that shit is wild. Like man, if I was gonna kill somebody I'm just gonna wrap my tires so they don't leave anything but a fucking flat track well then they're gonna know that your tires but then I would unwrap my tires well I guess that makes sense so there are many other ways that forensic science is implemented into solving crimes and toxicology is used to detect different poisons in the walls of a victim's stomach and the first the first time this was used in a murder trial was in 1832 uh, what? John Bottle was accused of poisoning his grandfather with arsenic-laced coffee. At the trial, the arsenic that the forensic chemist had found had deteriorated, allowing the suspect to be acquitted due to reasonable doubt. The chemist was annoyed by this, so he worked diligently to find a better, more stable method of detecting arsenic, which ended up being so sensitive of a test that it was able to detect as little as one-fifteenth of a milligram of arsenic. Damn. Yeah. And then um, ballistics was pioneered by Henry Goddard of Scotland Yard in 1835. He noticed a flaw in the bullet that killed the victim that he was then able to trace back to a mold that was used in the manufacturing process. That's a lot of... It's really smart thinking, though. Yeah. Like, just looking at things. And it's, like, people were finally like, I wonder how these work. Like, I wonder. Right. Like, in their... It's people like me who question things and look at things, like, to solve problems. Moving on. Um, so... Let's see if I can say this right, because I said it, like, 500 times, but it's a very long word, and I screw it up every time. Anthropometry was first applied by a French police officer in the 1870s when he created an identification system based on physical measurements. Before this, criminals were only identified by their name or a photograph. But, um, so he was, you know how, like, when they do the crime scene photos, they, like, will lay a ruler next to something to take a picture of so that, like, when they take the picture, it also shows, like, what the size was. Yes. And, like, they can look at markings on someone's body to be able to tell, like, how big the person's hands were, which would basically tell them about how tall they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he 
invented this. He also created many other forensic techniques, including um, forensic document examination, the use of galvanoplastic compounds to preserve footprints. Um, he moved the ballistics more forward where they could tell more about like the bullets being shot from like a specific gun, not just like it's a specific type of bullet. Mm -hmm. And then he also created the dynamometer, which is used to determine the degree of force used in breaking and entering. Um, his methods were soon replaced with, like most of his methods were soon replaced with fingerprinting. Because mm -hmm. fingerprinting is like, it's one person. Like your, your fingerprints cannot be the same as somebody else's. Right. I think they have, <coughs> they said there's like a one in like 86 billion chance that you might have the same fingerprints as someone else. There's not even 86 billion people, so... Well, there we go. Nobody has my fingerprints. That's why I've never understood people, like, when you hear about crimes that are committed and people, like, if it's premeditated and they didn't wear gloves. I'm like, you're fucking stupid. Yeah. So stupid. Most definitely. Because you know, like, your fingerprints aren't like somebody else. The, the French police officer, he also started using mug shots. He would stand people up next to a thing to see how tall they were. Mm -hmm. when they took the picture and like the obviously the measurements of items at crime scenes these are things that he started that are still in existence today like things that we they still use which is genius yeah so moving on to fingerprinting itself so sir william herschel was one of the first to advocate the use of fingerprinting in the identification of suspects um, and while he was working for the Indian Civil Service in 1858, he began using thumbprints on documents as a security measure to pre prevent the then rampant forgery of signatures. So, like, he was signing things with thumbprints instead of signing things because his thumbprint was his own. Like, nobody else could duplicate it. That's smart. I miss my fucking smart lock on my old phone where it used my, my Your thumbprint. thumbprint. Yeah. Yeah. I wish... Like, I don't know why they got rid of that. Yeah, I don't know. Mine has freaking face recognition. Mine does too. But we like... also know how well that worked. I mean, I guess since you've lost all that weight, like, it doesn't recognize you as me anymore, but... It used to be able to unlock my phone. It's true. So now I have a case for you where fingerprinting was used first to solve a case. Yes, girl. Boom, boom, boom. So in 1892, Francisa Rojas was found in a house with neck injuries while her two sons were found dead with their throats cut. Oh, shit. She accused her neighbor, but despite their brutal interrogations, were not able to get the neighbor to confess to the crimes. An inspector went to visit the scene of the crime and found a bloody thumb mark on a door. When it was compared with both Rojas and her neighbor's prints, it was found that the print was identical to Rojas' right thumb. Oh, shit. She then confessed to murdering her two sons. That bitch. Mm-hmm. She was trying to, to fucking pin it on her neighbor, and it was her trifling ass. Right. How you want to do your neighbor that dirty? She was probably hoping that they were just going to believe her and arrest him anyway. Right. But that thumbprint, though. Stupid bitch. And then in 1901, the, and I'm probably going to butcher the shit out of this word, the Ulenthuth test was invented by Paul Ulenhuth. 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 And that test is used to distinguish the difference between animal and human blood by discovering that the blood of different species carries different characteristic proteins. Fucking genius. Right. Like, 
We don't know. Is this blood on your clothes? Is this from going hunting earlier? Or is this from when you went hunting earlier? Yeah. <laughs> when you was hunting. <laughs> so the last form of forensics that I'm going to share with you today is all about the initial use of forensic DNA analysis. This procedure was first used in 1984 and was developed by Sir Alec Jeffries who realized that variation in the genetic code could be used to identify individuals and to tell individuals apart from one another. The first application of him using uh, DNA profiles in a case, like to solve a murder mystery, was in 1985. There was a 15-year-old schoolgirl who was raped and murdered in a psychiatric hospital. The police did not find a suspect, but they were able to obtain a semen sample. And then, in 1986, another 15-year-old girl was raped and strangled in a nearby village. Uh, forensic evidence showed that both killers had the same blood type. Richard Buckland became a suspect because he worked at Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital, where the first murder occurred, and had been spotted near the scene where the second murder occurred. Ooh. He also knew on release details about the body from the second murder. Right. You know how many of these fucking shows I watch and they talk about the people like talking about information that nobody knew. I'm like, you guys are fucking dumb. Well, just, just wait. So later he did confess to the second murder, but not the first. Sir Jeffries was brought in to examine the semen sample from the murders and found that it was not a match to Buckland. Oh, shit. Neither of the murders were a match to Buckland. So he admitted to a murder he didn't do. Exactly. So Jeffries then confirmed that the DNA profiles from the semen samples at both murders were identical, and to find their perpetrator, DNA samples were collected from the entire male population of that area. Over 4,000 men aged 17 to 34 were tested. Um, it wasn't until a friend of Colin Pitchfork was heard saying to someone that he had given his sample to the police claiming to be Colin. Colin Pitchfork was then arrested in 1987 and it was found that his DNA profile matched the semen samples from the murder. So he sent his friend to do a donation for him in his name to try to cover up the fact that he'd killed oh, these two girls. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. See, and you would have gotten away with it too if you didn't go off bragging about it. Mm-hmm. So after this case, uh, DNA databases were developed, and there are now national and international databases as well as the European Network of Forensic Science Institutes. They have like a master database with DNA stuff in it. Um, these databases now allow crime scene DNA profiles to be compared to profiles that are already in the database. So, like, if you've committed a crime, you win there. If you've swabbed your cheek and sent it off, you win there. Oh, shit. <laughs> they gonna know if you did something. So, yeah, I, um could honestly like go on about this the history of this stuff forever like there's so much cool stuff but i have to stop somewhere so this is it the history of forensic science <laughs> that was so like interesting to research like i don't know i was worried about it at first just because like yes i know it's interesting but like, I'm like what am i gonna talk about Meh. And then all of a sudden I'm like finding all this shit and I'm like, oh, I might as well just continue with this. Yes, girl. Yes, girl. Beauty and a history lesson. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm glad you love it. Welcome to Emily's spin of forensic science in the criminal justice system. Yours is always, like, fucked up, because, see, like, I tell, like, the history of everything, and then you're like, ha-ha, take this, bitches. Well, I just so happened to come across, because I just was like, I'm going to do a forensic case, whatever. 
I just happened. This was the very first one I looked into and I was like, I obviously have to do this. So anyway, this is the story of Helen Greenwood. So Helen Greenwood was born in 1949 to her parents. So they were Sydney and Marguerite, Margaret. I don't know how you would say that Marguerite or Margaret, whatever. She was from London. Actually, I didn't put that in there. Maybe I did. So she was an only child. Her father was an art professor from what I gathered and her mother was a geologist. So she went to universities in Sheffield and London studying biochemistry with her main focus being DNA. So after graduating from college, she married Roger Franklin. So then in 1977, Helena Greenwood and Roger Franklin decided to move to the United States And when they got here, they decided they were just going to take a year and travel and see things, whatever. So they did that. And after that year was up, they decided to settle down in the city of Atherton in Silicon Valley. And if you don't know where Silicon Valley is, it is in, it's basically the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley. (laughs) I was going to be like, I have no idea. Um... Did you really not know? No, I didn't know. Oh. So, and when they moved there, she began working as a research a research analyst specializing in DNA. So, life was really, really good for Helen and Roger until on, a- on an April night in 1984 when Roger, Roger was out of the country on a business trip, okay? So, Helena's getting ready for bed. She does her, like usual thing makes herself a cup of tea whatever puts the tea kettle up in the windowsill before she goes to bed to like cool off you know off the stove and she tucks herself into her cozy beds already just mm, I'm just gonna fall asleep and she did well she wakes up in the middle of the night and there is a stranger in her room like a strange man and basically she's not able to see this man at all other than the fact she saw his eyes, but he had a black hoodie on and he had the strings of the hoodie like pulled really, really tight so that literally all that was showing was his eyes. And he basically proceeds to sexually assault her and it ranged from him like basically forcing her to perform oral sex on him and then some other stuff, whatever. And he threatened her and basically was like, she should have bit that dick off. I know. Um, but he tells her, you know, like, you can't go to the police. You can't tell anyone about this. I'll know. Da, 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 da. Well, Helena ain't fucking stupid. So as soon as he leaves, she goes to her neighbors and calls the police. They come. And think about it in this aspect. This is 1984. Yeah. There's not all the, like, testing and shit like we have now to the point that they probably would have caught that guy like within hours if that would have happened now. Yeah. And one of the really like interesting things about it is it wasn't even noticed by the police who came to her house originally when she'd first called 911. It was when they went back to revisit the crime scene that they realized the tea kettle that had been in the door or the um, window frame like cooling off was now outside on the deck. Like, next to where the window is. So, and evidently... picked it up to move it to get in the window. Yeah. A rape test kit was done on her, but again, they didn't have DNA, stuff like that, like they do now. And they'd found a pillowcase that had a stain on it that they had assumed was a semen stain. So, they kept that as evidence. The only thing they got out of all of this was three fingerprints that were on the tea kettle. Jeez. So, you'd think, like, oh, it's awesome. They have, like, this much, you know. Yeah. Nowadays, oh, yeah, you got fingerprints. <laughs> you got fingerprints. You got them. You, you got fingerprints. You got jizz. Like, you got you got this in the bag. Right. Well, they ran the fingerprints through the system, and there were no matches. So, again, they were, like, stuck, basically. So because yeah, they have no description of a person to even know who to look for. Right. So, this unidentified intruder was still at large, and for almost a year, actually, this guy 
went without being caught. And then miraculously, one night, this creep is caught masturbating outside of a 12-year-old girl's window in an apartment complex. Gross. Yeah, and the police came and arrested him. And when they fingerprinted him, I don't know if at that moment, you know, I, I don't think it happened like that. I think he was in trouble and then it eventually was ran again and they found that match. Yeah. But so basically this opens a whole new trial because like she says, they show him a picture of, or they show her a picture of him and she's like, I don't know. I don't know what he looked like. Yeah. And so basically though, because the fingerprints matched, it put him at the, the scene basically and he they present that to him and instantly i guess like he lost all the color in his face and all his response was was i was really drunk at that time like i was really drunk and i don't know what happened blah 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 blah, blah. bullshit he knew or else his face color wouldn't have changed right david remained in custody for a while and then he actually was released on bail And the case was set to go to trial, but during the process of the case going on trial and him being bailed out of jail, Helena and Roger had moved to San Diego, or the San Diego area. I think they were in, I'm trying to remember, it's literally right there. Basically, basically San Diego. Okay. So they moved to San Diego, and Helena had accepted a new job working for GenProbe, as a biomedical researcher working on diagnoses through DNA. Ooh. Yes. So Helena was known for being like very, very prompt. She was always at work like she was supposed to be. She wasn't ever late. On this particular August morning, Helena did not show up for work. Oh, no. So her coworker got really, really concerned because he was just like you know she's always here yeah she's never late she's always early like blah 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 so he tries to contact the house and gets no answer so then he calls helena's husband roger and is just like you know i'm concerned she's not here we have this presentation or whatever they were supposed to be doing that day and she i i can't get a hold of her So her husband's like, well, I'll try. He tries calling and then he gets worried because, I mean, obviously a year ago she was attacked. Like, so that would make him worry. So when he doesn't get a hold of her, he leaves his job and goes home and he sees that her car is still there. So he's like, okay, she's here. And he goes over, like, to look over the fence and her lifeless body is just sprawled out in the yard. Fucking, oh man. Yeah. So, Roger calls the police, and when they arrive, they secure the crime scene, and there was, again, very, very minimal evidence at the crime scene. Someone had dumped the contents of her purse out, but nothing was taken. Um, So they dumped it to make it look like she was robbed or something? Probably. And, like, all her paperwork that she'd had in her hands when she'd went out to go get into her car to leave for work was just flying all over the yard, all over the place. They And it was set, stated, like, it was very evident that she, like, fought yeah. the who, her perpetrator. Like, she'd fought because, like, multiple of her fingernails had broken off. And then underneath three of the nails was a, like, microscopic, not microscopic, you could see it, but, like, the stain of blood. Mm-hmm. But also, it's 1985. So, yeah. at this point, they take in what they can for forensics. Yeah. But the trace, the trace amount of blood under the nail was not enough for them to be able to get any form of DNA at the time. Helena suffered from petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes, which is a result of strangulation, which... Was the cause of death. Poor Helena. Yeah, so the police first suspect was the husband due to the fact that, I mean, you hear it all the time. It's usually the spouse. Yeah. Well, 
this actually upset Roger a lot, which I mean, obviously it would upset me too. Like if I'd came home and found like one of my siblings dead and then they were like, you were the one who found her. So you are the main suspect. And I'm like, But anyway, but the reason that there was like attention kind of drawn to him also is because when he found Helena's body, he called Gen Probe first and then he called the police. He was probably just in so much like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Shock? Yeah, that. <laughs> Roger had left for work that morning around 8 a.m. and he recalled telling his wife goodbye before he left. And the phone record showed that Helena had actually been on the phone until just before 9 a.m. So after checking to ensure that Roger had actually been at work at 9 a.m., they knew that there was no way Roger could have killed her because Roger's work was a 40-minute drive from the house. Okay. So there was no way if she died like at 9 whatever and he was at work at that time, there was no way he could have been there at all. So Roger was eliminated as a suspect. And then the most obvious suspect, David Paul Fridiani. Did I even say his name earlier when I was talking about him? I don't think so. Oops. Wait, no, you, you did because you were calling him David earlier. Okay. So the most obvious suspect was her rapist, David Paul Fridiani, who was coincidentally out of jail on bail which I'm pretty sure that I read his bail was like $25,000. But I'm pretty sure bail bondsmen, if you go with 10%, will cover the bail. Because that's like why Dog the Bounty Hunter goes after people. Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly enough, also, the day she died was just about three weeks before she was supposed to go back to San Francisco and testify against Fridiani. In the rape thing. So, after being questioned about his whereabouts, though, at the time of the murder, he was adamant that he was in Northern California, 500 miles away. He had nothing to do with it. So, there was such a small amount of evidence and no proof that Fridiani was anywhere near San, San Diego at the time of the murder, and they had no suspects. The only person who had seen or heard anything during the assault was an elderly neighbor who stated he thought he heard the sounds of a person cry out. But that was it. Nobody saw anybody. Nobody saw anybody. Nothing. So the trial against Fridiani went on as scheduled. At the rape scene, there had been a semen stained pillowcase like I talked about, and they'd run forensic testing on it, and it showed that the blood type was an O-type secretor, PGM type. So basically everything about this DNA mat, like, the DNA and the blood matched David Fridiani to the T. So he was found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. And he served three of the five years, but was let out on good behavior or whatever. And went back to his normal life as is. And I'm pretty sure he worked as like an accountant or wait, something wait, like wait, that. Wait, 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 So he had raped this woman and then he had tickled his shit in front of a little kid. And then he went and killed this woman. They have no evidence that he killed this woman. And so he went to... They have no evidence that he killed her. This is the trial just for the rape. But he only had to serve three to five years for raping her? Mm-hmm. Is that how they make people serve for raping people? I mean, I guess. That's disgusting. Yeah, I know. They should, like, be locked up forever. Because obviously they think that they are owed something. David Paul Fridiani's life went back to normal after prison or whatever normal, I guess. And the case of the murder of Helena Greenwood went cold. Like, it's just a cold case at this point. It was tucked away. I mean, there was nothing. And in the time span before anyone looked at the case again, Helena's husband, Roger, had died from cancer. Both her parents had died. So there was really nobody. They didn't have kids, you know, nothing like that. Nobody to like pressure seek justice for her. Yes, and then, so then, just one fine day, one of the cold case detectives pulls out her, her case, and is going through it, and there was a big thing that was completely overlooked. 
just seven days before the murder of Helena Greenwood, David Paul Fridiani had been involved in a minor traffic accident in Southern California, not far from where Helena lived. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Ooh. So the work that Helena had been doing with DNA had been progressing and, you know, obviously. But basically it all progressed on and they decided to pay more attention to the blood underneath the fingernail that still remained in police evidence. They had made the discovery of poly- polyamorous chain reaction that allowed scientists to copy small trace amounts of DNA samples and multiply them until they have a large enough sample to test. Ooh. Yes. So this is what they did. And they also paid closer attention to the clothing that Helena had been wearing when she was murdered because they discovered blood on the nylons, on her nylons, and like traces of a handprint. So basically they found the blood, cross-examined the blood that was underneath the nail to the blood that was on the nylons, and it was a match. And these blood samples were then compared to Fridiani's blood, and it matched 1 in 23 billion. Ooh. So, when the police arrived to make their arrest for David Paul Fridiani, he was on his way to his car, getting ready to leave for work. And they said as soon as he saw them, he all the color just drained from his face. And they told him, you know, you're under arrest for the murder of Helena Greenwood. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, blah, blah, blah. Right. He was probably hoping they were never going to, like, as forensics developed, that they were never going to open the box. Right. Walking around a free man for over 10 years since you've not only raped this woman, but then murdered her. So, but he was found guilty of the murder of Helena Greenwood and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Fucking right. How dare he, like, think he can go on and live his life normally after doing something so disgusting. Right. And you were fucking slapping your meat to a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. Like, you fucking sick bastard. <laughs> like, I was, like, tickling himself. Yeah, tickling <laughs> the old pickle. <laughs> but I, I really liked that one because she worked with DNA. Yeah, like, she helped make it possible for her case to be solved. Mm-hmm. But that's so crazy. How do you overlook that he had a traffic violation or how whatever? Do you, how do you miss that? How do you not run his name and find that like right. there was a traffic violation? I understand violation? it was 1985. That'd be a public record. Mm-hmm. And for so many years for no one to even like look at it. Like it just sit, sat back in a drawer somewhere probably collecting dust. Yeah. And then, oh, I'm just going to decide to take this out and take a look at it. And holy shit, I just solved this fucking case. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. And it makes me sad that, like, her husband didn't get a C. I'm glad that they do that, though. Like, now that we've progressed so much, they go back every so often and look at, like, old cases and solve those mm-hmm. cases. Like, I agree. I agree. I wish her husband would have been able to see justice get served, though. Right. Oh, man, that story had me going. I was Because you're like, wait, he did this, but he's only serving three years? And I'm like, bitch, there's no evidence that he did the murder. Well, no, but, like, he blatantly masturbated, like, to a 12-year-old kid in yeah. front of this 12-year-old kid. And... He only had to go to prison for three to five years? Yeah, bitch. That's disgusting. Because, like, you know, prison three years ain't going to magically change you. Like, it's oh, not, not going to make you be, like, not a pedophile anymore. Having, forcing yourself on someone like that should be more strongly punished or punishable. Oh, I completely agree. It's fucking crazy. Helena deserved better. And it's crazy to think, though, like, if she hadn't said anything, like he'd said, she probably would have been alive. Yeah, honestly. 
Because I'm pretty... That has to be why he was going to kill her so she couldn't testify against him. Yeah. Which is crazy, dude. You only faced... You only had three years. So three years was worth fucking killing somebody over? Yeah. Sick. 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 But yeah, that's the case of Helena Greenwald. Yeah. Or Greenwood. I didn't think about that. Like, Helena Greenwood. He... Like, her testifying would have just made him be guilty anyway. And yeah, it wasn't like... found him guilty. It wasn't like he was facing, like, life in prison or anything for raping her. Like, and he was still found guilty. Is this motherfucker still alive? Oh, I don't know. That's what... I hope he's, like, still rotting in a prison somewhere. So I feel like that was yet again another successful episode. I I agree. And we did just do a database search and David Paul Frudiani is still very much alive in the Mule Creek State Prison. Well no, he was in that um oh, substance, yeah, no. substance abuse place. Yeah. Never mind, he's not in Mule Creek anymore. I mean it's still a prison, but it says for substance abuse or whatever, but he is still rotting in prison, so... 66 years old. Yep. And I saw that I could request a visitation with him. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not do that. Like, listen, I want to know your side. Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Like, Why? Like, hey, we're two podcasters that happen to find the case of Helena Greenwood. We'd like to meet with you. I'd like to look inside your mind. There's people, though, like, especially serial killers, that would definitely agree to interviews and stuff like that because I, they have, like, radios and stuff. They could listen to it. Oh, I know they do. They they even have, like, TikTok and shit. Yeah. That shit's wild. I feel like it's weird that they're allowed to, like, have access to some of that stuff, but... I agree. I agree. I feel like I've talked enough. Yeah, same. Sometimes I think I talk too much. Never. But anyways, so, like usual, you can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and also you can email us anything you would like, just no dick pics, please. Yeah. To beautyandthescreams at gmail.com. Yes. And there's also, when Emily posts this beautiful episode, she's going to put in the details at the bottom links to be able to buy any merchandise if you are so inclined. Yes, if you want to support your girls, slap a bumper sticker on your car. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for coming back, and we will... See you later, alligators. Keep it spooky. Keep it real. Spooky.